so excited for you to hear this episode of Managing Well, the reality of gender exclusion in the workplace. I was so honored uh, to have a conversation with Tali Bray and Tiffany Tavares and really still in awe of, of our conversation. Uh, we talked about imposter syndrome and whether that's a real thing versus the systems that might need to change. We talked about intersectionality and how often organizations talk about women. They only mean one kind of woman. They don't think about all of, of women and, and what organizations and people managers can do differently there. Uh, we talked about um, gatekeepers um, and how people in power can really help careers or derail careers or stall careers based on their their gatekeeping. Um, and often we think of, you know, maybe those are white men who are the gatekeepers in organizations. And we had a real conversation that it is not always white men um, who hold the power reins and don't turn it over to others. So really excited for you to hear our conversation um, and think more about what real gender inclusion looks like in the workplace. Welcome to another episode of Managing Well. I'm your host, Tanya Ladipo. I am so excited for today's episode and to have an incredible conversation with our guests as we talk about gender exclusion in the workplace. So we are, I am so fortunate to be joined uh, by Tiffany Tavares and Tali Bray. Tiffany Tavares is, serves as Technology DEI Council Leader and Director of Communication for Technology Diverse Segments, Representation, and Inclusion for Wells Fargo. And Tali is EVP, Technology Diversity Community Sustainability. She leads a global, global team with a focus on people strategy, cultural transformation, and sustainability to help drive Wells Fargo's technology's multi-year modernization and transformation to build trust within communities we serve and to ensure the growth as their employer of choice. So Tiffany and Tali, thank you so much for uh, joining and uh, this great conversation I'm excited to, to dive right into. So um, good, good. Uh, before we kind of start off just to have our, our listeners kind of have a sense of as we're talking about gender exclusion in the workplace and some tangible things that people, managers and companies can do to address it. Um, I actually want to start us off with a bit of a conversation about um, imposter syndrome, which is something that we hear so much when we talk about women. And so I want us to start our conversation there. And then we are going to get to some of the stand, to the tangible um, policies and you know techniques people can actually do. Um, but so often we hear about um, women and imposter syndrome. And when we were having our initial conversations, I was reminded of a Harvard Business Review article that says, "Stop telling women that they have imposter syndrome," which I thought was uh, an interesting read. Um, that we'll put in the show notes so people can learn more. And so I, I really, um, I wanna hear from both of you, Tiffany, from Tali, I wanna hear from both of you kind of your thoughts when you hear the term imposter syndrome. Where do we even start, Tanya? You know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have Tiffany, uh, you please go first. You and I have had this conversation a lot. I know we both have a lot of passion around this. So please kick us off and I will chime in. 
And and this is why um, Tally's amazing. So I have to, you know, throw this disclaimer to everyone that is tuning into this amazing podcast, which is Tally is my manager. And I love that we are doing this together. Uh, many of the topics that we're going to discuss today is something that we talk about in and outside of work all the time, something that we're, you know, not just passionate about, but even just really curious about and sometimes angry about. So <laughs> it's a really great combination. Um well, you know, I'll be really honest, you know, imposter syndrome, I was joking um, over the holiday season, um, for me, it's like Santa Claus. I don't relate to the idea. We keep feeding it, thinking it will eventually benefit us. And the story, the hype around it has grown way more significant than the reality of it. Um, so disgust is a feeling that I feel really, really strongly about when I think about that um, concept. It's a concept that countless individuals and organizations have profited off of. Um, it is an ugly monster that many, for some reason, continue to give life to. But it is also a brilliant strategy to ensure that, you know, those who have been historically oppressed continue to sustain a narrative that they shouldn't be where they aren't wanted. Um, and I also consider it to be fundamentally culturally in, uh, culturally incompetent. Um, it distracts us from the real issues at hand, um, which is really about, you know, psychologically safe spaces that cultivate the ability for people to show up. Uh, as they are and whatever that means for them continues to elude women, especially women of color. It also means there continues to be a lack of leadership um, of people who are willing to bring those who look different than them along with them in a way that doesn't make them feel threatened, uh, inadequate, or believe that providing someone with validation takes away from their power. Um, so that's that's what I'll start with. <laughs> yeah, well, I, great start. Yeah, and, and so so Tiffany and I have talked about this a lot. And um, you know, I not surprisingly, I'm gonna agree with everything she says. I think one of the things, and this was in the Harvard Business Review, so I am I am borrowing from an idea that was shared there, but I think the fundamental flaw with imposter syndrome is it's about fixing women instead of fixing the dynamics of where they work. And that's what's so problematic and offensive. And why, to Tiffany's point, it just propagates this continued system that is based on excluding certain populations. And so to Tiffany's point, it is at its height for women of color, for queer women, right? For, you know, trans femme, non-binary, like, these systems are designed so this you know to exclude right to center power when there's a certain group and so when we tell someone we're an imposter it's like oh tiffany you know what man you just gotta you just gotta be a little bit different and then you will fit into this system versus saying hey this system is flawed and if we really believe that our organizations are most you know impactful and i always go back to the data most profitable when they represent the communities they serve you're not gonna do that if you don't bust open those systems and start to really create place for people. And so I also take offense at the idea that it's problematic for me to have insecurity. I have insecurity every single day and I want it to be okay for me to have insecurity. I'm nervous being here right now. I want that to be okay. That doesn't make me an imposter. It does not make me a fraud. So it is just this entire framing to Tiffany's point that is, I think, what did you say? Offensive? Uh, what was the word you used? No, was the word I remember. Yeah, disgust. Yes, it is disgusting. Um, and it's self-propagating. And it is one of the many things I think we'll talk about today, where systems still fundamentally benefit those that they center, even when we talk about, oh no, we're going to be inclusive. Oh no, we're going to look at representation. If you yes, if you will fit into this model and you're still going to be excluded to a certain extent. 
and the systems that um, center certain people, but were also created by those same people, right? So that it yeah, continues. Of course. It, it continues. And so what I'm hearing from both of you that I think is really important um, just to hone in on is that it's not an individual woman's responsibility. It's not on the individual, right? It is a fundamental problem with the system, right? Yeah. That needs to be addressed. And when, when we think about creating inclusive workspaces that it has to be done from a systemic perspective for it to be genuine and for it to actually make a real a real impact. Yeah. And Tanya, I'm really glad that you shared the article. I'm I'm curious if if I don't know Tally, actually I'm curious about um your opinion here as well. Did you notice in the article they kept interchanging um in terms of language the the phrase of doubting your abilities with distrusting your success? And it was used interchangeably. And I thought that was really interesting because I didn't find, I don't find those two things the same. Um, and so to, to Tally's point, which is something that I, I really admired about her off the bat, which is, look, we're not saying that we're not trying to validate when you feel anxiety or have self-doubt, lack of clarity, lack of reassurance. Like those are feelings that are, that are real. You know, only you can validate them. They're, they're totally your own. You know, you are in control of your feelings. That's something that, that you own. But the, the distrusting of your success, right? Because initially the whole concept around imposter syndrome was really um, targeting and really trying to speak to high achieving women to begin yeah. with. I, I, I found that to be really problematic. So I, I don't know, Tally, if, if you popped yeah, that Yeah, well. I, I picked up on that as well. And one of the first, um, and I can't remember off the top of my head, but one of the first um, examples that they cited was this woman that was organizing an event, a black woman. She was the only black woman on her team organizing this event. She knew she was doing, you know, she knew she was doing a good job. She knew she was competent, but she was basically facing, you know, discrimination and bias in her work environment, ultimately resulting in conflict and her being demoted. And what she knew about herself was this was not a lack of her self-confidence. This was not a lack of, you know, her competency that held her back. It was, you know, repeatedly facing a system that is built on racism and bias. And so I think, you know, to your point, that is really important to differentiate, hey, my success is valid, but this system won't see it or doesn't, you know, doesn't recognize it versus, oh, I'm just having a rough day. I'm feeling insecure. Like we really need to allow people to be people, which means like all of the, you know, frailties we bring to the environment. And then also recognize that we can have that and our success. And the, the really frustrating thing is, and I think this is so true for women of color, um, you know, and, and queer women, um, particularly for queer women of color, when you're success, you know, you're competent, you know, your success is there and it is being diminished. Like you talk about women of color two years in the workplace and they switch roles. I, I, I mean, I can imagine how just like, I mean, so demoralizing, so frustrating to see, I know I'm doing good work, but it's not being recognized. So no matter how good I am, no matter how competent I am. That's the systemic mm -hmm. piece. And so I do think that this touches on this whole idea of imposter syndrome really touches on a much larger issue around, you know, systemic bias that exists in the workplace because it exists outside of the workplace as well. Right. Which I think is important. I always say when we're working with organizations, like the, the workplace is a microcosm of the world. So the problems we're That's having right. in the workplace is because those are the problems we're having in the world That's that right. have not been resolved. That's and right. so leaders in the workplace have a great responsibility and are being being called to task now in ways they weren't before to do it better and differently than we're seeing 
That's right. In, in society. And so I, as you're talking, I was also thinking, you know, it's, it's, I was thinking a couple of things, you know, every time I hear um, you say uh, women of color, queer women, the more marginalized people are, the more biases that they have to navigate. So I think I just wanted to, um, I think the three of us, we, I, we're here, there, but I wanted to kind of pull that piece out for listeners. If there's a question of like, why does she keep saying, you know, women of color? Why does she keep adding queer women? The more marginalization that yeah. people experience with intersectional identities, yeah. um, the greater the bias and the harder the workplace. And I think, you know, I would be remiss, like, I, I think one of the groups, and I we talk about this a lot, that is most marginalized are, you know, women um, with disabilities and people with disabilities in general. Mm -hmm. But when you look at the intersection of disability, whether it's cognitive, physical, visible, invisible, and you look at gender, um, and then you look at really basic things like just accessibility to tools to do your job. Like, you know, it amplifies that whole, I think it amplifies this exclusion to a much greater extent. So thank you for calling that out, Tanya, because it is really important. Mm -hmm. um, you know, kind of as we're starting to talk a little bit about uh, intersectionality, I'm kind of, I'm curious, you know, a lot of probably since the 80s with the push for affirmative action, um, I feel like a lot of organizations, <laughs> I feel like I saw you take a deep breath, Tali. Um, <laughs> did because I mean this. I just I can't I can't help myself. But what's happening with the Supreme Court right now is going to have massive reverberations, not just in academic institutions, but it will come fast for you know private institutions and business, and it will have it will have impact. So yes, you saw me like brace myself. Okay, so as we're talking about intersectionality, what I'm also starting to think about is the ways that organizations, especially in the 80s, um, when there was a push for um, more diversity um, and more gender diversity, the ways that intersectionality was not considered, right? And so the push for diversity and we need more women and let's get more women really defaulted to white women, right? No. Um, and not considering all women. <laughs> um, and so I'm kind of curious just to hear from your perspectives how organizations and people managers can really put policies and practices in place so that when we are trying to expand gender inclusion that we are considering all genders. Can I go first? I have an opinion on this one. <laughs> so I want to back up for a second. And I think it's really important also that we talk about how um, this idea about representation and representation of women tends to center white women, unless you really explicitly say we want to center all women, which includes we've already talked about this women of color, queer women, women with disabilities. Right. So, um, you know, when we so we know we're in a system that basically prioritizes um eurocentric um you know masculine heteronormative right it centers that strategy or the sort of those identities mm -hmm. and so white women are the closest in proximity to i will say i will say hetero cis white women are the closest in proximity to eurocentric masculine right heteronormative men uh and so when we think about that proximity and we think about the systems that benefit really sort of whiteness and we talk about representation and this push to bring in representation 
it's really easy for the system to just say, hey, great, I'm built around the structure. I prioritize these attributes. I'm going to like expand it a little bit to look at gender, but that gender still is going to fit within these basic attributes. And that, to a certain extent, is why this idea of representation, particularly around gender, can honestly, I think, actually be in some ways more damaging because it just continues to reinforce bias built into the system than if we're really intentional and say, hey, when we talk about women, we're talking about, you know, all women. And Tiffany, I've had this conversation because, you know, I was talking to a, a colleague, I don't know, a year ago, and um, we were talking about programming a white woman. She was like, oh, I'm so glad there's an event finally that's for me. I was like, wait, what do you mean? I don't understand. We've had a lot of events for women. And she was like, yeah, but they're for Black African-American women or Hispanic Latina. I'm like, they're for women. Like, they're for women. You're a woman. So, you know, even this, this whole idea. So when we talk about sort of policy and practice, I think it's important that we explain why this idea of representation around gender can actually, I think, be culturally damaging if we're not really thoughtful about how we're defining it and how we think about including all women. And that means actually, honestly, intentionally, I think prioritizing women from historically marginalized communities and at least like really centering that intentionally. So, you know, that being said, when, you know, we think about policy or we think about practices, policy is really tricky, right? You just mentioned this a moment ago, affirmative action. Affirmative action is a policy. EEOC has policies. Um, we are, you know, we are bound by those policies. You know, we could have a completely separate conversation on the Supreme Court's, you know, decisions and what will happen in academic environments, how that will impact then private industry, how that will impact the work that we do. So I'm going to just pause on that because that's an entirely separate conversation. But policy can drive behavior to a certain extent because it measures us. And there is some right policy that holds us accountable. Um, you know, the, the, the federal policies that govern us, you know, like really help drive, I think, many of our people's strategies. Um, but I think we have to really think differently between policy and practice. So if we acknowledge um, that we, this idea that practice can help remove discrimination in the work environment by not addressing it, sort of, we talked about this more broadly in society, that we can do things in a vacuum in our work environment that we cannot do more broadly, I think is really challenging. Um, and, you know, I, I know I'm going a little bit sideways, but th th it also sort of reinforces this idea, like we want to believe that when people come to work, they leave everything behind. We talk about this with the Buffalo Massacre, like, oh, okay, you know what, just come to work, it's cool. Like be in your work environment, do your thing, leave that trauma behind. And then I guess go back to that trauma when you leave work. Like I'm not certain what the expectation was, but like it doesn't work that way. And so I think it's the same way around policy and practice. This is sort of that debate of, do you drive behavior or do you drive belief? Well, I will say from my point of view, and, I, and I don't, Tiffany and I don't always agree on this. My point of view is in a, in a business, you drive behavior and you measure that behavior and you hold people accountable to that behavior. And my hope is by measuring and holding people accountable that behavior, there's some muscle memory and eventually they will start to see the benefit. Driving belief without addressing some of the broader issues, right, within society, I think is very difficult. So how do you address some of the issues around intersectionality, representation, inclusion, engagement? Um, my point of view is you measure people and you hold them accountable and you tie their comp to it and you tie the company's performance to it. 
so Tiffany, I'm gonna I want to ask you to weigh in, but but real quick, Tali, you mentioned it like one concrete example of like tying comp to it. Um, what else would you recommend in terms of kind of your perspective of of emphasizing behavior? What else would you recommend for people managers or organizations to do to really kind of create an inclusive inclusive? So, I mean, I think there's, right, there's like setting, setting uh, KPIs, setting metrics goals, measuring them, tying, you know, tying it to performance evaluation. But I also think there's, you know, what is your CEO saying? What is your operating committee saying? What is your board saying? Are they like every time there's a town hall, every time there's a global meeting, are they talking about the importance of this? So from the top, is it part of every single conversation? And are they commenting about what's happening in the world, recognizing that we don't have a wall between what happens at home and happens in the office? Um, and then everybody throughout the organization, like make it an expectation that every conversation, not, not literally like obviously common sense, but team meetings, town halls, ask me anything, so that they always touch on the importance of this topic. You start to reinforce then the cultural aspect of it. And I think you're sort of like, that's a way you can start to try to drive culture and belief and you measure and you hold people accountable through the behavioral aspects. Thank you. Thank you. Tiffany, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Oh my goodness. So it's funny, Tali, I was, I was sitting here, I was like, oh, I hope she brings up the, the, the changing behavior versus changing belief and how they're connected. And I, I was sitting here, I was like, please bring it up. I got you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, but no, honestly, I mean, there's so much that Tali said that was so uh, comprehensive that I think is really um, just a really fantastic example. I do wonder, I shouldn't say wonder, I do get sometimes concerned that when organizations do tie uh, these sorts of, you know, inclusive practices to compensation, right? Um, that the behavior is solely driven um, for profit and not necessarily uh, meant to inspire change in belief. And as a woman of color, I, I truly believe in my heart of hearts, unless I can change your belief, I'm the, 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 I may change behavior temporarily in the short term, but I don't believe that it's going to necessarily be sustained in a way that actually truly changes. Um, it's, it's almost like, you know, do you want people to change or do you want people to perform? And there's some places that might be okay with that, you know, they, and they use it interchangeably as long as it happens and it gets done. But I know for, you know, people like Tally and myself that we're not just looking for people to perform um, and do really good for 365 days, but really commit to this, that whether or not they are in the walls um, of their uh, employer, whether or not they're in the walls of their church, of their community organization, of the store, wherever, whatever space that they're in, that they actually uphold those inclusive practices no matter where they go. And that's way harder to achieve um, when there's no compensation tied to it. <laughs> Very true. Very true. You know, when I when I think of um, when I think of, of kind of belief and, and behavior, I think the uniqueness of the workplace is that in some ways it can regulate behavior that it, that other places yeah, can't. Exactly. So being able to exercise that power and to your point, Tiffany, it doesn't necessarily mean people believe it or buy into it. And then there is there is the inauthenticity. It does feel inauthentic, right? If it's if it's just the action, um, and so I'll tell you my 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 hope, my belief, my thought is that when you when people change their behavior, even if it's just because of compensation, mm -hmm. that over time that that does become integrated into a new belief system because if they are starting to interact with more people and different perspectives on a regularly consistent basis, then it starts expanding their thinking of like, oh, maybe 
maybe how I, I was raised isn't how I want to continue to think. Yeah. Or they leave the organization because it because the behavior change becomes too much because it goes against their beliefs so much that they're not willing to change their beliefs. Um, so that's kind of how I, I I like to think of them of them working together. <laughs> You know, it's That's a good plan, Tanya. Good plan. <laughs> One of the things we talk about, uh, and we talk about this specifically in the supplier diversity space, but you know, we have this little, I have this little, it's an academy, maybe it's a catchphrase, I don't know, but like people go with who they know, so you got to change mm. who they know. Mm. And so I think, Tanya, to what you're saying, like we have to change who people know um, because that's like to, now make this absurd because that's going to change who they go with like if i play that out but I, I do think there is something to be said for that you know um and i'll, I'll go back but quickly i was you know working with a, a client and in a you know a part of um the country that was really wealthy and and it, and being in that part of the country um suburban wealthy which i think is different than urban wealthy because urban wealthy usually, even if people are segregated by geography, there are spaces where people interact more so in urban spaces. So suburban, um, very homogeneous, wealthy. And I it, like being there, I, like click, like, oh, this is what some people grew up with. They really have not had experiences with other people. Um, and hearing it versus seeing it kind of hit me differently. And so to your point of sometimes the workplace, especially in organizations that are global, are the first time people are interacting with people who have significant um, yeah. differences. Yeah, Tanya, I, I'm glad that you brought that up. And I know that this is slightly veering off um, topic, but these are some stories I've shared with um, Tally before, which is, you know, even right as, as a first-gen college student and graduate, um, a lot of my first experiences with, um, you know, white communities and the way that I had engaged, not engaged with them before was not until I got to college, but also in that space is where I learned that they had not engaged with many people of color or even people outside of their income bracket. And I remember there was one day someone said, oh my God, you know, it took me there. It's your day downstairs. It's your day downstairs. And I'm like, what are they talking about? You know, and I, and I'm rushing downstairs like, oh, in the cafeteria. And so I was like, oh, what? I'm thinking, first of all, what's my day? Like, what are they thinking? And it was uh, Mexican Independence Day. Um, and they were serving um, like taco, like hard shell tacos. And I mean, all this other stuff. And I, I, my, my mouth just fell to the floor and it was really, I mean, it was hilarious. Um, and I was like, please, hard shell? I'm a soft shell girl, like, please stop. No, but seriously, <laughs> I was really like sincerely shocked at the level of, and I, I don't wanna just say ignorance, but just the lack of like self-awareness. And that was kind of the beginning of a multitude of experiences for me that really showcased like, oh, this is not just the first time, you know, um, someone in my family has gone to college, but it's going to be the first time that I'm going to be having a series of experiences where I am someone's first. And, you know, to have to go to that person and say, you do know that I'm not Mexican. Like, oh, but all the food is the same, right? I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. This is, I got to start from square one. This is very different, you know, to be told, Hey, you know, I know that you got that scholarship because they have a quota to meet and, you know, all these constant, um, phrases and words that people use to ensure that, you know, they're, they're saying, I'm going to do all I can to make sure that I am still centered, right? I wish you success, 
but I want to make sure that I'm centered. And so, you know, that's why I've been really um, grateful that when we, when it comes to like programming that we've talked about, et cetera, it's always talking about inclusive language. It's, you know, talking about ways to train managers to be really mindful of what they say, because that's really going to influence the culture that they create. Yeah. You know, the example you just gave, um, the way the, the words and phrases that people were saying to you to, and I love how you said it so that they can stay centered instead of you. And going back to the top of our conversation with imposter syndrome, some people would kind of latch on to like, I felt like an imposter when you very clearly said <laughs> it had nothing to do with your capabilities, yeah. but how other people were questioning your very real capabilities, which is about them and their, their expectation to stay centered, right? And so we're, when you're talking about workplace policies, this is the hard belief part shift of changing that belief that that way that has been for many years that that is the only way and what we're saying now is not only is it the only way but it is not the way forward it is not the best way to work that that belief of centering generally one type of person has to shift for it to be an inclusive space and then going back to Tali's point that will then ultimately be profitable and more beneficial for the organization, right? And so Tiffany, you start to say, and I'm just curious to hear more, like what are some of the ways that people managers and or, or leaders, right? So depending on whatever level you are in, in the organization that can really make an impact on building an inclusive culture. Oh my goodness, I feel like uh, Tally would be way more appropriate to answer this question. You know, in, in my I am not a manager, but I am, as Tally loves to remind me, I'm responsible for influencing a lot of people and making sure that they jump on board, um, which sometimes could be harder to do, right? Because you're not a manager and you're, you know, the whole you're, you're supposed to is not there. Um, so there are a couple of things. I mean, for me, the first and foremost, anyone knows me, I have to lead by example. I mean, the, the old saying of, you know, do unto others as you want them done to you. That still holds true. Everything from, you know, again, the language that you use um, to the way that you consider people. And, you know, it's funny. I remember there was um, one role I had uh, with a company, um, not Wells Fargo, <laughs> that we, you know, I used to go in, I would just keep my head down, do my work, et cetera. But I didn't really um, understand at the time that the leader that I was working with and supporting was the top leader. And there were a number of people I had to interact with um, in order to get to her. Essentially, it was like a chief of staff type of role. And the one thing I failed to, to realize and when I really limited myself and how I engaged with them and spoke to them and simply asked how they're doing was, first of all, I was not just setting a really great uh, example for myself in terms of how is it I wanted people to engage with me, but I was also making her look bad, right? Because all of our reputations are tied to one another. And therefore, I'm like, oh, well, if I'm making her look this way, making her look short, making her look uninterested, then I must be doing that as well on behalf of the company. And so I really had to take time to then separately build individual relationships with people and make sure that like, hey, the trust that I'm trying to build in you is going to be reflected in how we work with each other. And that's something I know I was missing as an employee from managers that did not do that with me. And so as even though I kept thinking, hey, I may not be a manager, but these are still behaviors that I can, I can echo and take to heart 
that was something that I know I started to do. And the last thing um, before I do pass it on to Tally, because I believe she's way more qualified for this, um, <laughs> is, you know, one of my favorite quotes um, is by uh, an Irish author named Sam Beckett. And um, he said, words are the clothes our thoughts wear, right? So again, Tally and I talk about language all the time. So the words you use and, and how you use them in the place, in the workplace rather, it really informs culture. And so when I'm being really intentional and in how is it I speak to you, it's not just because I'm trying to be nice to you. It's not just because I have nothing else to say. I'm really, from an optics perspective, trying to show you that you matter and that what you think and how you feel really matters. And I really am interested in making sure that all of us are on the same page for whatever goal it is that we need to, need to achieve. Tiffany, I was just jotting the quote down. I love, I love that and the way you explained it. And before Tali, I ask you for for you to weigh in on this. Um, you were saying, Tiffany, you're not a you're not a people manager, but you you're an influencer. And so I think I, I just wanted to again kind of say that again because there could be people who are listening who are not people managers who still have an incredible amount of power. Yeah as mm -hmm. influencers. So whether it is power to peer to peer, power to levels above or below, right? But to your point, like that connectivity, that connective tissue um, to influence how we talk to each other, how we expect to be spoke to, all of that. Um, I think I really, when I heard that, I was realizing, wait, that is, <laughs> Tiffany has a very powerful position. Um, and I just don't <laughs> want, um, I don't want people to overlook that um, that power and then responsibility that comes with the power, which you very clearly take on. Uh, so thank you. Appreciate that. Well, thank you. Tali, would love to hear your your thoughts. Yeah. So I actually want to um, I want to continue pulling needle that needling that thread, pulling that needle, whatever that saying is, um, as it relates to <laughs> leaders and influencers. One of the things that um, I've been thinking about and that we've been talking about are basically creating influence maps. So for your audience thinking about, okay, if I'm a leader and look, we're all leaders. I mean, it's cliche, but we lead ourselves. We show up every day. We choose how we show up. And you know, to Tiffany's earlier comments, that is how people see us and it influences how they see themselves. So this whole idea of being influencers, if we think about driving cultural change, we should take like we should take a lesson from all of those incredibly savvy TikTokers, like who have, like when you think about who you want to influence, what's your map? Who are the stakeholders are you going after? What language is going to resonate with them most? Like, you know, one of the things Tiffany is very savvy at, and I feel like we're having this like mutual love affair on this call. And I just like, that's very strange, but, but it's true. One of the things she's really savvy at is figuring out, okay, who's my, like, who are, who are the key stakeholders? Like what's that influencer map look like? And what's going to resonate with each stakeholder? Cause you're not going to go with one size fits all. You obviously want to think about who you're speaking to, what's going to like really resonate with them. So if you take this idea and you think, and I'm gonna like tie this back to driving belief, not necessarily behavior, but if you take this back to driving belief and who you know we are as leaders, regardless of whether we're people managers or not, and how we connect to the influencers who may have much broader reach, that's the way to amplify like cultural messages around belief. And that amplification like allows us to scale incredibly, particularly when you're talking about an organization like we're in where we have you know, roughly 40,000 people. Like our team, we're 15 people. We see ourselves as catalysts. We see ourselves as influencers. And that's an incredibly 
important position and it's an incredibly impactful position, but we're not hiring thousands of people. We're not leading town hall, you know? So I think that idea of influencer is really important regardless of whether you are a people manager or you're an individual contributor. The, the one other thing that I wanna mention, and I just, for me, it's interesting, this whole idea about language and Tiffany's experience, okay? So language about people wanting to continue to center themselves. We center ourselves by othering other people. So I think that's something we should all, or I encourage your listeners, I encourage myself, I think about this a lot. Like, what am I doing intentionally or unintentionally to other you when I'm talking to you? And am I doing that because, and I know this is something we may get to if we have time, because I'm gatekeeping. And as long as I can other you, I get to gatekeep. Or am I, is there a reason I'm doing that? So I also encourage people to think about that, not just what, and particularly for people like in, um, you know, sort of dominant, uh, dominant groups, right? Majority groups. Like, is my othering intentional? Is it to gatekeep you? Is it because I just don't understand? Is it honest? Is it ignorant? You know, I, so I think it's important that we all think about that as well. I, I'm so glad you said that um, and gave kind of the, the self-reflection questions we can ask ourselves. But your point about gatekeeping, especially as we were just talking about the power people have to be influencers, there's also the power to be gatekeepers. And I think let's, I do want to hear more, um, especially, you know, we often hear and talk about, you know, it's the old boys club, you know, meaning like old white men are the ones that are in charge and that they are the gatekeepers. Um, and it's not always them only. So can we, I would love to hear uh, from both of you really, um, your thoughts, your experiences um, with various gatekeepers and then specifically, what needs to be done differently? Because when you have power, you are going to use it. It's just a matter of how, right? Um, so I would love to hear, hear from both of you. Oh my goodness, gatekeepers. It's, they're abundant out here in these streets, Tanya. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, they really are. So um, the one thing that I, I do wanna start with is actually just reminding people that gatekeeping doesn't look one way, right? Tanya, you, you mentioned this. It's not just, you know, your neurotypical cisgender heterosexual white male, right? It's, it's not just him. Um, it could be other women. Um, sometimes it could even be other women of color. Um, so there is diversity around where oppression comes from. <laughs> so just, just know that. Um, and I say that to say, because to me, that's why um, gatekeeping, I mean, it's really a form of, in a lot of ways, white supremacy. And that's to me, one of the most successful things that white supremacy has done is to recruit soldiers that don't even look like them to uphold that concept. Wait, say um, more, and Tiffany, please, like say more about that piece right there. <laughs> I think it's a really important piece that, just say more, please. <clears throat> So there was, and, and it's funny, and the reason I'm even bringing this up, so um, years ago, I was um, in Nigeria for a friend's wedding, and there's a, a studio we got to visit, and this artist had a flyer on his wall that said, um, colonialism was a startup, and that completely blew my mind, and I just found that, wow. I mean, I just, literally all of us that saw I was with a group of friends, we just kind of were floored and just took a, a moment to, to process, and we started to have a conversation 
And then I realized when we started to talk about because we were using essentially workplace terms like marketing and, you know, circle back and all these different terms that we use day to day and attach them to concepts outside of the workplace that were considered bad, offensive, oppressive, et cetera. And, and you know, in terms of marginalized people. And I, and I realized like, oh, the most successful thing that white supremacy has done right, just if you were to think of it as an organization, is recruit employees, right, and recruit these, recruit these soldiers that actually uphold and serve as an ambassador for what that organization, i.e. white supremacy, stands for. And the, and the crazy thing about it, which I'm sure many of us have had ex- lived experience with it, which is you realize, oh, not all those employees look alike. They're not all cisgender, heterosexual, white men that are neurotypical. Sometimes they are women, people who, as a matter of fact, for years, you thought you were really close friends. You thought they're your family and they're completely different. And so for me, that has been really wild when if, if, some, if, a, if a white woman in this particular instance, as an example, may be seen as really successful and seen as you know, having a diverse perspective because she's brought along women of color in her career and her journey, and they have been promoted and had access to you know, a variety of different opportunities, but those black women are not inclusive of people that look like them, or if they are very specific, um, even the way that they may look, right? If they don't feel comfortable having natural hair, if they are of a certain age, if they don't speak up, et cetera, then you start to realize like, oh, you're, you're also being very specific, right? Because one of the most dangerous quotes is empowered women empower women to me, because oftentimes the, the most empowered women right. never, ever would think to curate what women deserve to be empowered. And that's oftentimes what happens in gatekeeping. As opposed to taking in all of the women who are competent versus the ones who are going to fit into a particular mold, right? And continue the status quo, which is a whole nother, we have a whole nother conversation about why people do that. Um, but to your point, that not all gatekeepers look one way. Thank you. Um, thank you for sharing this, this story, uh, Tiffany, but also kind of really, I think, explaining, explaining that in such a clear, concise way. Thanks. <laughs> I find, you know, I find it's hard to, to, to explain how people can uphold and be soldiers of white supremacy when they're not white. Um, mm-hmm. And so I just the way you explained it just seemed so, so clear. So I'm, I'm grateful. And Tally, the, the thing that Tally does for me on a day-to-day basis remind me how nuanced this work is. I mean, that's like a word that it's funny. I'd never really use it in my vocabulary. It's not something of word that I considered, but because of her, it's something that I have to remind myself because that's to me a strength of hers. That's something that's a reminder and something that I practice every day. So, and there's a lot of nuance, nuance in that space. And that's yes. why for me, it's been hard to articulate. So. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> Holly, I know we only have a couple of minutes left, but I want to, I want you to weigh in. Um, yeah. I feel like as the you know, as a white woman on this call, and there are many white women who are gatekeepers, um, and this whole idea, particularly when it comes around women. So we ta- I talked about this a bit before, um, this idea of increasing representation, but keeping it within a system, reinforcing that system, right? So if white, you know, cis, hetero, neurotypical women are the closest fit to what that system centers, creating space for them is the least threatening to disrupting that system because that system benefits their whiteness, white supremacy. And this idea of 
um, this is all about proximity to power, right? All of this is about proximity to power, proximity to access to resources, decision-making influence. So if I have the opportunity um, to get closer to that power, I am incented to maintain that power, regardless of whether I'm a white woman. I mean, look at, let's be honest, look at the Proud Boys. There are, you know, non-white members of like white supremacist organizations. And it is, you know, it is mind boggling to a certain extent. But part of it, I think, is the closer I get to whatever I consider to be that access of power, the more invested I am in maintaining it. And so when I think we see white women as gatekeepers, particularly in the workplace, because we're here to talk, right, talking about the workplace, but particularly when we see that, it's about, I have finally had this opportunity to get close to having influence, power. Why on earth would I risk this moment? Because it's been really hard to get here. Yes. It's really, really hard to get here. So why would I now dismantle the system where I just finally got access? Yes. And so I think one of the things to like make this practical that we should be really intentional about, and I think particularly as white women, is when we get proximity and when we start is to ensure that we are really opening that door, opening the aperture and truly being intentional about creating you know, access for everyone while also being really thoughtful out, okay, what in this system can we do to dismantle some of the things that are really problematic and ultimately stunt a people strategy? So I'm always going to tie this back to like people strategy, work and profitability, which I know is like uh, stuff talking about money. But, you know, I do think that there is a really important aspect that if you don't do this well, your people strategy will suffer. And particularly with demographic generational shifts, like people have to figure out how to do this. And that does mean that the power center is going to look different. And that's yes. going to be very uncomfortable for a lot of people. Yes. And it's going to take a lot of courage to make those shifts. I know we're, I'm, I'm, we're at time. And so I think if either of you have one thing that you would want our listeners to think of or do to take a step further on true gender inclusion in the workplace, what would you say? So I'm going to use a quick example. We've had conversations, um, and I've had this conversation at, um, with uh, the CEO of Lesbians Who Tech, and we've talked about how she'll reach out to organizations, and they will say, oh, hey, I got women covered. I'm at Grace Hopper. I got women covered. I'm with Girls Who Code. And this idea that you don't have women or any demographic covered because they're not monolithic, please just remember no single population is monolithic. So you don't have one covered just because you're talking to one component of that group. Thank you. Yeah, that's gonna be really fun to follow, Tali. That's great, thank you so much. Uh, the last thing I guess I can think of, um, and I do wanna target this message specifically um, to marginalized women. Um, I, I think it's really important to carry a message on, um, which is you know, your quick replies and ability to not even just replies, but even your ongoing expectations of statements that you feel diminish you and oppress um, who you are doesn't refute your mental exhaustion. Um, and it is okay to completely feel like you're not validated at times. I think that's totally human and fine. But just know that you know it is worse than a war sometimes. It is psychological terrorism, what many people go through day to day, trans women, black women, uh, Latina women, women with disabilities, et cetera, that is not just meant to hurt you, but to systemically break down the person you've worked so diligently to become. And all of these aggressors just simply, you know, prove that aggressors will try to 
bully their way into creating a culture where they don't want you there or they don't want you to feel empowered. And that has nothing to do with you. You know, as women, it's easy for us to revert to a state of mind where we're going to walk around with a toolbox, like ready to fix everything, but never really think about and what happens um, when, when we break, right? And who's going to fix us. So make sure that you're very intentional in taking care of yourself. And if you um, are someone that witnesses something like that, um, you know, leadership isn't leadership unless it is inclusive and resilient to silence. So do not be complicit in the behavior um, for people that uh, you say that you care about and you do nothing. That was a perfect end. I am so grateful, Tali, Tiffany. I am so grateful for your um, thoughtfulness, for your, I was gonna say courage, but this is who you are. I think it might be courage for some people. Maybe it's just for who you are, but you're, for showing up as you and bringing you and, and all of you to our conversation. Uh, and I think I think we're all better for it. So thank you. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. you. Yep. Thank you, Kylie. Thank you, Tanya. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Managing Well podcast. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to learn more about today's topic, go to www.theladipogroup.com slash podcast for a worksheet on today's episode.